Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Charles Devaney. Charlie has been a CPA since 1990 and received his MBA from the University of Maryland and his undergrad from the University of Texas. He began his career in big six auditing with KPMG Pete Marwick, then segued into industry as a financial leader for public and privately held companies. He's been working the past 15 years as a virtual CFO. His current CFO clients include Service Dogs, Inc., The Daily Dot, Data Vortex Technologies, and Austin Living Landscape. He also has a fast-growing tax consulting CPA practice in Austin, with an emphasis on IRS negotiations and retirement tax planning. He has a self-published graphic memoir. He is a 500-hour certified yoga instructor and holds an active screen Actors Guild card as well. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm uh, glad to be back on. Yeah, for those who are listening that missed it, Charlie was on our 16th episode where he discussed the role of a fractional CFO. Today's topic is the IRS. Nobody wants to end up on their bad side, but we'll be discussing some strategies should they ever come knocking on your door. Charlie, I'm looking forward to discussing this topic and learning from you, so let's get started. All right, great. For those that haven't had the pleasure of listening to your previous podcast, tell us a bit about yourself, what you do today, which clients you serve, and how you got here. Yeah, I went through traditional big six accounting at the time, controller, VP finance, you know, for medium-sized companies. And I, I kind of, after some time in my career, I realized there was a great opportunity to do the virtual or fractional CFO and essentially... There's a lot of companies that don't need, nor can they afford a full-time controller or CFO, but they still need the financial leadership. So it was a really good model. And I've been doing that for at least 15 years. And I just really enjoy meeting different people, staying on my toes, getting to learn new industries. That's what was going on. And I still do that. You know, that's, that's a year round project. I have some clients I've been with for 20 years, 12 years, six years, most of them, it's not a ton of time. So um, for a while, I was looking for, you know, kind of side engagements, uh, interim controller, somebody quits, you jump in, you know, train the next person, document what's going on. But what happened is I kept on being asked, hey, do you know a good CPA to do uh, tax prep and consulting? And I've, I used to do this in the early 90s. And I said, why not me? I know so many people in town. I constantly be, I'm getting asked. And, you know, it's kind of the sweet spot working with these, you know, three to $4 million companies. And plus knowing a lot of people who are self-employed, they have a, a Schedule C or a solo form uh, LLC or S Corp or what have you. And, you know, it was, it was a sweet spot that was just kind of overlapping. And even on the tax side, I would start working with clients who said, yeah, yes, please come in and, you know, kind of prep my uh, financials for uh, the auditors or just the bank I'm dealing with or another investor or family member and just kind of, you know, cleaning it up about once a quarter or so and letting them know where they are and taking that advantage of that opportunity to, uh, you know, say, hey, we might want to put some estimated taxes here or do an IRA and, you know, that perpetual dialogue. So it's been great. I've been doing that tax work again the last three years. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I know the last time we spoke, the idea of a fractional CFO was was new to me. I've I'd never really heard of it before, but it's, I mean, it seems like an awesome career path. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. You know, it's the toughest thing as a solo practitioner in that avenue is, you know, you had to get your your clients. Yeah. And so since I was out marketing a lot, I met a lot of individuals who didn't need a virtual CFO, but they didn't need tax work. And it just the more people you work with, the more opportunities you have. And like I said, some pretty nice synergies as well. So over the past few years, what trends have you seen? Can you tell us a little bit about the topics and issues that your clients struggle with most? They struggle with just gathering their data. Everybody hates to do that. I'd like to get things done. I mean, it sounds pretty simple, but just put all your IRS correspondence, put your W-2s, your 1099s in a file folder, and then just, you know, let's talk and we can go from there. It only gets a little more complicated is if you have, you know, a Schedule C, you know, you're self-employed or you have a small LLC or an S-Corp, in which case you need to keep track of your expenses. So, you know, I've taught some people how to use QuickBooks or just, you know, summarize in Excel. And I have one client, he literally gives me a shoebox, you know, cost him <laughs> more money and I don't love it, but <laughs> at least he gives him the shoebox on time. He's not asking for an extension. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like what I would be doing, handing over. Yeah, and it's okay. I think, yeah, I think people are a little embarrassed. It, it's fine. You know, there's, I don't know how to fix a car. <laughs> uh, you know, I really only speak English. So, yeah, and taxes are so complicated, and it seems like every year they just get more and more so. So, I think we could yeah. all use a little help. So, uh, you know, just overall trend is what we're seeing. You know, obviously, with the slowdown, you know, with IRS was basically shut down for a long time. You really don't want to mail them anything unless you're forced to. So, you, you want to file electronic, you want to make payments electronically. When you're doing the return or estimated payments, everybody should set up an account with the IRS. And that way you can see what's going on. You have a track. You're not mailing a check they're going to lose. So it's pretty easy to do. And I highly recommend that. Another unfortunate trend that I'm seeing, and it's almost like 10% of my clients, is there a lot of identity theft. And sometimes the IRS, the one that is theory finding that out, which I found pretty odd. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. It's definitely a wow. I had somebody today and their 2019 was filed on time. They used a, another CPA before me and, you know, he showed us the record. It was accepted and everything. And they made, she made a payment, the whole nine yards, and it was never processed. So after, you know, sitting on a hold, always have like a book in hand when you call up the IRS. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> when she finally got through, like, oh, yeah, we, we just we shut down the whole process. Yes, it was received because we thought there was an identity theft going around, which wow. is really odd. That's the first time she heard about that. You know, she's in the middle of, of buying a house. And so that would have shown up on her FICA scores. I don't know why they're getting in that game. But um, another thing is um, people are basically stealing stimulus checks, I hate to say. And again, that's checks. What you want to do is file electronically, pay electronically so the IRS has your banking information. And they're not going to take money out, but they will put money in. Yeah. With something like a stimulus check so it doesn't get mailed and stolen or, you know, talk to people like, oh, my, you know, 
actually, you know, I, I teach prison yoga and a couple of guys, their uh, exes have been cashing their stimulus checks, unfortunately. <laughs> prison yoga. <laughs> yeah, that's another topic. <laughs> and actually, I was talking, it's funny, and, he, I just, and then we kind of chat afterwards. And, you know, there was a guy, uh, I might bring up some examples of, he's basically going to do offer them compromise when he gets out. Because, you know, you can't lock things. If you're incarcerated, they know they're not going to need funds, so everything kind of, but should you should always write back to them, you know, say, Hey, this is my situation. I'm putting together an offering compromise. I'm working with a CPA. I'm working with attorney. I'm in jail for two more years. You know, just, just let them know. Because another unfortunate trend is there, the IRS is a lot quicker to send collections to a collection agency. I had never seen that from when I was doing it some time ago. And at first I thought it might be a scam, but yeah. There, there's legitimate collection firms. Yeah, I'm surprised. I would have thought yeah, they'd do the not. collecting themselves. No, no. Anyway, and uh, I heard the, the biggest one they're after, I haven't seen it yet, is people who are taking advantage of the earned income tax credit, which is really crazy because that's not a lot of money. And anyone who is getting an EITC is not making a lot of money. So I saw this back in the early 90s where sometimes the IRS, they'll go after the little guy who's never going to hire an attorney. And it's like they're looking more for a victory, even if it's $500, than a big fish where it takes four or five years. Maybe they're thinking they're going to have another job in four or five years. I don't know. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like bullying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's pretty sad. I mean, there's, there's reduced audits, which is good. A lot of things are being triggered by ratios. And you know, I'm getting more requests for like, hey, why didn't you send a 1099G, which is an unemployment statement? So just because they have a copy of that, you know, they don't talk to each other, the software we have here. So, you know, quite often it's just a request, respond to it, send it back certified. You know, unfortunately, you can't even like do a PDF and load it all up on an email. So. So specifically, as we emerge from the pandemic, are you seeing anything that's surprised you over the last few months? And just curious how your clients are faring. Surprise me? No, I, I, I was surprised to see some of these requests for information, stuff that should be pretty obvious, you know, electronically filed. And you think they should have been able to drill down. Yeah, again, you know, if you go after somebody with an, with an earned income credit, we all know that that guy's not making a ton of money. And then you have the Obamacare. So you need to be, be careful. This is advice to anybody who's you know eligible or and you can be paying the full. But if you're eligible for Obamacare, affordable health care, and at the, at the time you're not making a ton of money. So in January or February, you just lost your job, you know, you're getting some unemployment, and the premium might maybe for a family is supposed to be a thousand dollars. You're having a hard time. They're just going on your current earnings or lack thereof. And so your premium might be 200 bucks. Well, by the end of the year, you got a good job. You got off Obamacare. But they look at your overall earnings and they said, yeah, in retrospect, during 2020, you know, you made $100,000 and you weren't entitled to any kind of premium. I mean, any kind of discount. So I've seen that a lot, unfortunately. If you get a 1095A, it's what it is. It basically says, this is the premium that I should have paid. You know, this is the uh, the gross premium. This is the net. But that net was based on a situation that may have changed positively for you. So a lot of people who got discounted healthcare are now having to pay for it. Oh, another thing too, just to be 
careful for is um, it was nice when they put together defer Social Security and Medicare taxes. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. If you have W-2, it's pretty seamless. You don't have to worry about it. And your company is, a, is eventually going to put 100% of the money in. So, but if you're self-employed and you have a Schedule C or an LLC where the net, you would get K-1 and the net earnings are coming to you and you have to pay the, both the employer and the employee Social Security, at first it sounds good. It helps your cash flow. So let's say you have $10,000 owed in that double Social Security Medicare. You're able to defer 5,000, 50% of that. That sounds great. The key is it's being deferred, not relieved. And so you have to pay $2,500 by the end of this year and $2,500 by the end of December, 2022. So a lot of people benefited from that, but they do have to pay up and it's including companies that help their cash flow, but they're gonna have to pay eventually. So. Yeah, no free rides, that's for sure. No, no, there's no free rides. And that's the kind of stuff they will come after you on. Yeah, so speaking of which, when it comes to the IRS and local tax agencies, what do you think that people need to be most concerned about? What raises red flags for the IRS? Yeah. I'm going to start with, if you have a federal ID number, you know, because you're an LLC or an S-Corp and, you know, somebody talked you into doing this to protect the liabilities, which is a good thing. But... Um, if you have any kind of sales tax, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get audited. And you're probably doing a good job of collecting accurate sales tax. They're actually common. It's called a use tax or a purchase tax. If you can't prove that you paid taxes, because sometimes you don't have to pay taxes. You know, if you're building in construction, you might have a tax exempt waiver when you go to Home Depot, because eventually you're going to sell the house and whole and they will pay taxes on it. So, you, you know, essentially the system doesn't want to tax it twice, but most people don't have that. And sometimes if the seller makes a mistake and doesn't charge you sales tax, it can be something online. You know, Amazon, all those products should have a sales tax associate. And if they didn't charge you, they come back to the buyer. Here's what makes it so egregious. The IRS will come in they will look at 50 transactions and they know which one to look for. And if, you know, two of them, apparently you can't even prove that you paid sales tax. Maybe you did. So two out of 50, that's 4%. Once they have that data, then they say 4% of your purchases were probably also missing sales tax. And it could be a hefty dollar amount. I can only imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things is at least going forward, try to stay on top of that. You know, just make sure, you know, they're going to start off. They're going to look at your QuickBooks or whatever financial reporting system you have. And, you know, the more like kind of bulk entries you do, the worse. You know, if it just says purchases that you made some entry at the end of the month, that's going to be an issue. I mean, I'm not going to tell people to go and clean it up if they're not in the middle of an audit. But another thing, too, if once you get an audit, I think they're selling the information, too, or it's easy public access. I received six unwanted solicitations within a day for one of my clients. <laughs> the yeah. consultant firms who wanted to help you on this. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think there may be some help on the back end and you probably would need to hire an attorney because I was, I worked with another client and then I was off that engagement. So I don't know how it came out, but we couldn't believe it. They were just super aggressive. So, they did that whole extrapolation, wanted a big check. 
yeah, regarding the sales tax, like what do you recommend do, that people keep receipts for everything or yeah, what, I mean, what? Put it, yes, put it in a PDF, you know, you have to kind of do a self audit. And, you know, when you do your general ledger, all the activity, make sure everything can link back to an invoice. It's overkill, but for this, it's so much easier to do it going forward, you know, all the time, as opposed to, oh, I was audited some three years ago. You don't have anything. You're kind of stuck. So once an organization or an individual has raised the flag, how can they get the IRS or local tax agencies off their back? Yeah, I'll segue to the IRS. The sales tax, you just call them and they come in there and hopefully you can provide what they need and they decide it's not worth it. Or, or you probably settle for some nominal. But in the IRS, that's more likely that they're gonna, you know, you're gonna be, they're gonna notice you. You obviously want to avoid that. I can talk about that in a moment. But the main thing they what I'm seeing a lot of times, they're they're just asking for information. There's no re, no need to panic. You know, like I said, somebody they're about to get a, uh, a check that included the stimulus from the IRS. And they needed to send in their 1099G, which is the statement for unemployment. So we did that, you know, and we sent it certified and hopefully that will be okay. So more often than not, they're asking for information. Then another common one is just like reconciling 1099s. I'm I'm sorry to get in the weeds on this, but no, no, no. no, Yeah. So a 1099, that's if you're self-employed and some companies give you 1099, some don't, you know, there's that $600 limit, but a lot of companies, you know, they didn't get your records or they just don't care. And or they're incapable of doing it. And so you might've grossed a hundred thousand dollars and maybe $80,000 shows up on a few 1099s and you want to report everything, you know, it's in your bank statements. So you go, Oh, I have 20,000 was not 1099, but I did make it. And I want to pay taxes on that unless my expenses. So let's say somebody actually did send you a 1099 and they're not on the list that you recorded you know, on that first, in the first bucket. So the IRS is like, Hey, you know, there was a 10,000, 1099. I'm not seeing your detail. Well, you just kind of organize and say, yeah, it was part of the non-reported. You just kind of give them, you back into the information. Say, yes, it, I did take care of it. Quite often, you know, you can solve the problem. Yeah. I know people probably tend to freak out when they receive a, yeah. a letter from the IRS. Absolutely. No, I hate it. And, um, you know, I mean, I, it, most of my clients too, they, they, you know, when we do, they give me permission to talk to them. I would recommend it. You know, it's, it's on the tax form or if I'm doing a prior CPA's work, I did a power of attorney and it just makes it a lot easier. I had somebody call me up the day in a panic, like, oh yeah, I got the same letter because the limited power of attorney and I already took care of it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I'd recommend work with somebody you trust and, and give them the power to, t- to talk to them because that will expedite the process. So let's go through some of these solutions in detail. So offer and compromise. I know you mentioned that a little bit ago, but can you walk us through this process? Yeah. So the process of the offer and compromise, you begin by doing analysis and you could in theory do this by yourself. Um, You know, you you can do the first part by yourself and you can even do the forms, but basically you put a balance sheet together. What are your assets and what are your liabilities? You know, you own a house, you own a car, but you have credit card loan, you have student loan, et cetera. One problem with the IRS, the way they look at this, they don't care about your liabilities. They want you to borrow money to pay them off. You're like the mafia. And so basically, 
they're like, oh, yeah. they, they could say, go borrow more money, your visa. So I have a client who doesn't have a ton of money and we're putting together an offer and compromise. And I'm telling him, yeah, you can legitimately spend, you know, you can, his car is super old. You can buy a $5,000 car. You can pay down your visa bill. You know, if you need a computer for work. Now you can't just give money to your nephew or something. That, that, that would be bad. But anyway, you put together a balance sheet and they're looking at liquid assets or stuff that is easily liquid. And this is what, what is really sad. They will take out 80% of your IRA or 401k. Which I, I just, it's hard to believe, but they are entitled to do that. If you own your house free and clear, they would ask you to get a mortgage on it. Wow. So that's, yeah, they're actually looking where can we put more liabilities on? If you have a boat and a second car, maybe some collectibles, they'll ask you to sell that. Anything like above $1,000 on that kind of stuff. And the car can, if the car is over 5,000, then they're going to want you to borrow against it. It's, it's pretty draconian. So you go for the balance sheet then the income statement, what's your spend and what's your income, you know, after taxes. And so if you're, Grossing 2,500, well, say you're grossing 3,000 and you're spending 2,500, then you have an extra 500 to give them. So that they would put that in the equation. They'd say, here's the liquid assets after you sold your boat and robbed your foreign okay <laughs> and wiped out the bank statements besides $1,000. And we think you can uh, afford to pay more because you're making more money than you're spending. If it goes the other direction, where your expenses are higher than your income, they don't care. It's just, you would think. So let's wrap our hands around this. I'll give you some numbers. Let's say you're simple, you don't have a 401k, you don't own it, you rent, you have the one car that's old and there's no debt on it, and you have 10,000 in cash. So this is, this is an easy example. And, but right now you're also still getting through the tail end, hopefully of COVID and all you're getting is unemployment that's about to get cut off and your expenses are 2000 a month, but your income is a thousand. So you would think, wow, this guy's in the hole every single month, a thousand dollars, right? Thousand income, 2000 expenses. And he only has 10,000 in cash. Well, shoot, you can't really, you really can't afford anything until he gets a new job. Because he's going he's to go for that $10,000 in 10 months, right? You can follow me, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good. So make sure. <laughs> <laughs> Following That's along awesome. so far. Yeah, yeah. So um, they don't care about that. It's like, well, that's your problem. Just borrow more money to live on or whatever. Or, you know, call your Uncle Sue. Uncle Sue. On <laughs> Sue. <laughs> so... Uh, how do most people find themselves in that position? Is it that they just failed to that's pay a, taxes for a few a years? They didn't fall. That's a, yeah, it's a fantastic question. What happens is, you know, if you go work in a fast food place and even at seven fifty an hour or seven seventy five, and you're working full time, you know, you're making fifteen thousand dollars. Not not a lot of money. You're below the poverty level, but they do, and you won't pay any income tax but you will pay Social Security and Medicare. And then your company will chip that in too. So these people who are self-employed, they know they're not making a ton of money. They don't owe income tax. They owe Social Security and Medicare, both sides, employer, employee, after expenses. 
And so they might owe 500,000 a year. They haven't filed in 10 years. You start adding penalties and interest. And the guy who's making 20,000 a year is self-employed. He could owe 30,000 bucks because he wasn't paying. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. So that's the uh, balance sheet and income. How does that happen? Yeah. I don't know. Um, There's just people who file and don't pay. You know, I talked to this guy the other day and he was following his LLC and, and then the profits he owned hundred percent was supposed to roll into him. He didn't follow his own individuals. And now he owns a ton of money and he actually has a second house. Like you got to get rid of that second house. That's going to be a problem. All right. So we go through the income statement, the balance sheet coming up with liquid assets from their perspective. The third step is have you filed? Cause I know later you're going to ask about this, the uh, probably the statute of limitations. So statute of limitation is basically 10 years. So we're looking at if you never filed your taxes in 2011, 2012, you have exposure there. So the first thing I'm telling, you know, a current client, let's file, you know, it doesn't matter if you owe more money because he doesn't have enough to pay them anyway, but let's get a record that yes, I'm filing Include interest penalties, the whole nine yards. I should have paid you 500. Then now it's a thousand. At the end of the day, your tab is too high for you to pay, to pay anyway, but you want to file everything within the 10 year window. 10 years is a lot longer than I thought. I know. Yeah, it's rough. I thought maybe three. I know. That's if you didn't file, you know, that's, that's the big problem. Ah, uh, so if you didn't file, yeah, they then, can go back 10 years. I see. Yep, you got it. Yeah. I keep on telling people to do it, you know, or, you know, kid, you got kids in middle school who are going to need a financial aid and they, you, they might not even borrow any money, but their parents have to file taxes for, you know, for themselves and their independence. So, I mean, the good, the the, probably one of the best things about the whole COVID and the, with the stimulus checks, because that was the, put the onus on people to start filing. But now the IRS is coming back and asking for money. So that's the, that's the downside. And the stimulus checks, they, they could not lean on. You would get them regardless of all back, back taxes, which is pretty nice. So you get everything filed. You come up with your total tab. And let's say the total tab is 50000 but this poor guy only has 10000 bucks. He basically, you determine what you can afford. And you send in a, uh, in this example, you send a letter to the IRS. You send the application. It's like a $200 application fee. You can probably get that waived if you make on the $30,000 in individual. Otherwise, you send $205 for the fee, 20% of your offer at that point in time. And then you fill out the offer paperwork and the financials is another set of paperwork. And that's where people get frustrated and do hire. Then you send that in and you wait. After six months, then you should probably even actually start proactively sending them additional money. But what they're probably going to do now that starting to catch up a little bit, the IRS will call you, call your representatives separately out of the blue. Yeah, it's kind of a sneak attack. And they will ask you, do you have a friend, a relative? Has anybody died recently? You know, just who can pay you, you know, help you out? You know, what has changed? And then, you know, when they call, we, we prepare our clients to, you know, just answer succinctly and honestly. And we had the conversation with them, you know, 
if they have a super rich parent, there's a pretty good chance that they should be helped out. But if they're estranged, you don't even go on to it. Just say, no, no one's, no one's willing to help me. Look, usually willing and helping, able. So once you get you that phone call and accept your offer, then it's uh, somewhere between you pay full in five months or pay it monthly over a six to 24 month time frame. Once they've accepted, it's really good. They're not going to come after you again. They really don't care where the money comes from at that point. You just have to pay them. If you don't pay them, offers off the table, you owe the original amount again, less what you paid, plus additional interest penalties. So. And yeah. is it um, like a sure thing that they're, if you've like filled out your income statement and your balance sheet correctly, is it pretty sure thing that they're going to accept the offer or how often do yeah, they say no? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. If the math is right, they should accept it. They can dig, they can say, do you have other sources? Or I guess they could look at your assets, you know, the stuff like, do you have a boat or whatever? You know, they could go to some kind of records like that. They're not really doing field visits anymore. So I think the math is okay. And, you know, you don't choke in terms of your parents giving you money or whatever. But it's one of those things like, let's say if grandma is, if you're going to inherit some money in a couple of years, you want to settle now. Because once you have that inheritance, they're going to get it all. Yes, you want to get the clock ticking on all the statute limitations and everything. Start filing, put the offer in. So the offer... You know, the way I'm spelling it out, it's not a difficult process, but it is draconian in terms of them pulling the 401k, you know, making you bother your grandmother if she's still alive and all, you know, and wiping you out, you know, basically down to $1,000. Sounds like a painful process. Yeah. Yeah. The beauty though, it doesn't affect your credit. That's the main difference. It does not affect your credit. Huh, so if is... you all yeah, if you owe the IRS fifty thousand and they are and it's making you know not sleep at night, this is a great way to get out of it if it's just the IRS. You know, especially if you don't have a 401k that's funded and that kind of thing. So the other option is bankruptcy. Yeah. I imagine that's a last resort, but maybe it's not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. It would depend on the assets and the liabilities bankruptcy is much more lenient. They don't attach or go after your 401k. So at the end of the day, if, yeah, if you, you know, you could have 200,000 in in your 401k and the IRS wants 160 of that, I would, you know, (laughs) I would go bankrupt and you probably need an attorney. Actually, you almost always need an attorney with bankruptcy. So it'd be a little more expensive than, you know, a CPA or doing your own. And especially the IRS, it gets a little sticky. You know, it, they're not as they're not as easy to relieve, but it can be as your average vendor. So if you have, you know, if you have a house and don't have a, a lien on it, but the bankruptcy, you can keep all that equity. You know, it's pretty nice. You just you have to see what are the other assets. Do you have boats? Do you have a second house? You know, that's the things that they're going to go after. So in you know, on the surface, the bankruptcy looks better. Besides, there's a longer process and it's more costly. But then, you know, it's at least seven and sometimes you just can't clean up the credit 10 years. So it's really hard to borrow money again. I'm surprised it's not like a student loan where you, even bankruptcy can't protect what you owe yeah. the IRS. I know that that's a great, great point. And people try that for a while and they say, no, you can't just get out of school and say you're bankrupt, you know, because but there you are, you know, I mean, <laughs> you have a hundred thousand student loans and you're making 45. Yeah, that's an issue, but. 
it doesn't work, they don't wipe it out. So let's talk about late fees and interest. Yeah. Can, can those be negotiated? I yeah, know those easy. add up fast. They do. The way if you if you're not doing an offer and compromise and you're just trying to deal with the debt, you can ask for and they almost always say yes to remove penalties and interest on one year. So the year you made a ton of money and it was seven years ago, that's the one you'd wipe out. So they're they're pretty lenient on that. Okay, but just one year. You can only request just it the on one, one year. year. Yeah, I mean, there may be some extraneous circumstances like I was this um identity theft situation. If for some reason, you know, this poor person's tax return was in process, but you did file it, you know, so she can record that. But somebody something in the system might say a penalty is owed. I mean, another example that's going to happen where the penalties and interest will be waived, but in theory, according to the site of the IRS, it required a phone call. And that was, we all got extended in the U.S. to May 15th or 17th, right? If you lived in Louisiana, Oklahoma, or Texas because of the Arctic freeze in February, you were extended to July 15th or 17th. The problem was, they said in the IRS, it's not automatically in the system. If you do get a letter saying you owe interest and penalty because you missed that deadline, you can call and they should be able to help you out. Which, back to my original point, you, you don't want to call the IRS. So all my clients who didn't who were not able to file by May 15th, we did an extension. Just to be safe and avoid a phone call. And then I told them to send some money and if they owed it as well. Because that's, yeah, if just by doing extension... You do expose yourself. If you know you owe some money, you don't send anything in. They will attack some, attach some funds on that. Interesting. Yeah. So property renditions, what, what is this? Yeah. So I'm going um, to step back one second. And if your business is pretty simple and you're not collecting sales tax and you're not really, there's no, there's not product, you're not going to injure somebody, no one's working for you. I don't think I would incorporate because once you incorporate and most people, they incorporate, they do the LLC because they don't want something to go wrong in the business and then they sue your individual assets. But that's so unlikely. You know, if you're just like, I'm a CPA, if I mess something up, I'm going to get sued either way. You know, they're going to say you were the guy who made the mistake. They're going to come to me personally, yeah. regardless yeah. of LLC or not. And once you're incorporated, then you're susceptible to the sales tax audit which we talked about, property sales tax. And the way the rendition is you have an opportunity, if you're incorporated, to self-report your fixed assets and your inventory. Let's say in, the, in Travis County, where I live, in Austin. And, you know, that's going to be at least 2%. So for a lot of, you know, a lot of people, it's not a big deal. But so the rendition is a way so they don't randomly assign numbers. They have a right to audit you. I've never known anyone who's been audited on this. And then if it's a fixed asset, they assume it depreciates, so you pay a little less taxes on it. It's mostly for big companies that hold inventory. But the rendition, you should you should have take that opportunity to write down what the right number is. And uh, that's so pay 2% of that as opposed to something random. You know, they will, like you can like disagree to say it's about $25,000 if you don't want to fool with it. Well, you know, 2% of $25,000, you know, it's, uh, well, yeah, it's 500 bucks. It doesn't, it's not worth paying somebody, I guess, but you should be able to do a rendition pretty easily. It's just a one sheet form from, from the county. 
And that's only if you're incorporated that you need to worry about that? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Because it's pretty, yeah, it's like getting now if you're selling product and you have sales tax. Yeah, I think you, you need to be incorporated. So, so sales and use compliance. What are the concerns regarding this topic? It's going to be that the sales and use audit. You just got to keep really good records on your purchases. And, and you want to be really regimented about collecting correctly and, you know, sending the sales tax in because that's a, it's a little quicker. You know, if you're a decent sized company, you have to send the sales tax in monthly. But I'm just, I can't emphasize enough have good records where everything's backed up with an invoice. Hopefully it's in a PDF, easy to find. That proves you did pay sales tax to the purchases. That's where your exposure is. Uh, yeah. I mean, sales and use tax sounds super complicated. Do you, do you recommend people get like a, an accountant specialized or a, a tax yeah, accountant I, specialized in that area? It's a great question, especially when you're, if you're doing online sales, you know, there's guys and you know, they're, they're expensive, but they're, they're worth it. And they do this all the time and they can do it in a couple of hours and they start trying, they'll, they'll take you through all the rules of, you know, the, do you have nexus or not? And each state has its own thing with online sales. I think there's eight of them that don't collect that tax at all. I had to Google what Nexus meant. Yeah, yeah. So Nexus just, I mean, do you have a business in that state? And I would avoid California like the plague. I mean, they, they're, it's just expensive. I mean, it costs 800 bucks just to like get in there. And then you have to file income taxes every year, even if you don't have any income there. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. When you're incorporated and you start getting other places, it's, it becomes an issue. So Nexus is, you know, if you have an employee, that's going to be an issue. And you got to be careful. Somebody working full-time for you, you can't just call them a 1099. That, that's a big issue. And there are issues to audit that a lot. If somebody's working for you full-time, they really should, the company should be paying the Social Security and the Medicare. So you might as well hire the person, but it's just more tax compliance. And then you want to probably have like an ADP or somebody, you know, doing the payroll processing in the various states, but hiring somebody, you know, that's going to, you know, it's like, Oh, we're so used to doing zoom. We don't have to work together. That's great. But if you hire somebody in another state, you're all going to have the compliance and cost and you, and you just established nexus. Sometimes just going to a sales trade show. I was with a client and that happened, you know, they would go to the booth and hang out and Colorado found out about it or they could have. And the specialist we were talking about earlier said, yeah, you should go ahead and, it was interesting when we talked to the specialist because we actually have been doing this for a while, this online company. And the guy said, go ahead and maybe backfile about three years. So he, he was the whole premise of let's get the clock rolling, you know? And we, we only went for the biggest states, you know, because everyone else is going to be like a couple hundred dollars. So that kind of made sense, but that was like, let's get the ball rolling. By the time they know it's anything, you start having, and it was a shorter window for the statute of limitations, it's more like five or seven. But yeah, it's, yeah, those little online businesses, I guess, I guess another way to do online is, is pay it from the, the sales side. You know, so if you're in Austin, Travis County, at least collect Austin, Travis County sales tax. It's the worst case scenario, you've overpaid in Austin, you should have been paying to California. Yeah. So if I'm a small business and I sell something, let's say to someone in California, does that mean I've established Nexus in California? Yeah. Fantastic question. I'd ask that. No. I mean, unless you go there with the product. So if you're just shipping it online, you could have sales tax in California, but you don't have Nexus. 
Okay. So it's a physical presence. It's a physical presence. And it might've changed. I haven't looked at that detail. Don't quote me on that, but that's what it used to be. Okay. Yeah. I I think when I Googled it, it mentioned something about, it was a complicated topic, but. I think, I think we actually did. No, we, we had salespeople who didn't live there, but they went there. They were on the campuses to sell some items. And that was, that was enough, right? That was, that was definitely enough. I don't know if we never showed up just doing all, I don't think, yeah. It would be really illogical, but California is the one they will, they will, it's a money grab and yeah. a hassle. <laughs> so if I've landed on the IRS's radar, where should I turn? Where do I go? Yeah, definitely qualified CPA, somebody you trust, somebody's going to be proactive, somebody you're going to give limited power of attorney to talk to them. And then he or she will decide if you need an attorney. We quite often want an attorney, but I also I go to the go to the original person who prepared your taxes if you had somebody professionally do it. You know, you already paid for them. They should they should figure it out. You know, maybe they have the form. And so that's you, yeah. IRS shows up if somebody you paid somebody to do your taxes, have them look at the year they prepped. Otherwise, you know, give them a shot or a new CPA, and then you can decide if you need an attorney how much money you owe. And then because then we start talking is it off from compromise or bankruptcy or what have you. But yeah. Just fingers crossed. Don't panic. <laughs> fingers Don't crossed. Panic. You never get yeah. there. Yeah. Use that yoga. Take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. My, but my pleasure. Hopefully yours. I know tax minutia is not the most fun thing, but uh, it doesn't have to be intimidating and just get in front of it sooner than later. That'd be my advice. Yeah. Get the I think clock that's great started, advice. You know? We'll take care of you. (laughs) (laughs) I've enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experience. I think you've given us some wonderful advice today, and I appreciate you sharing. My pleasure. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.